the songs that we sang this morning, golly, it was, it was great. It was like an introduction to the book of Romans, uh, singing about the love of God. We've been, we've been looking at Paul's life throughout the book of Acts and his ministry through the book of Acts, and, and now we are being, we're going into Romans. And I, again, I know I say this just about every week, but I, I encourage you and I hope that you're, you're following along in our, our weekly readings as we go through the New Testament, uh, tracking with Casey's blog about the scriptures that we're reading each day. Um, as you really read just five chapters a week and meditate on them, it really does begin to open up in new ways, even, even if you've read it a hundred times, uh, uh, more about the love of God, the love of God. You know, I, I was thinking, even as we were worshiping, how I felt like I got to know Paul so much better in the book of Acts. And then the thought came to me, he'd be really disappointed if he thought that was what I got out of the book of Acts that we get to know Jesus, the person he is committed his life to. So in the book of Romans, just to, to kind of briefly uh, set the stage again, the book of Romans, first of all, even by uh, literary people that are not necessarily Christians, declare that the book of Romans is one of the most significant, well-written pieces of literature in all of literature. And for us as Christians, the book of Romans opens up, opens up so much of what Christianity is all about, true Christianity. And Paul, Paul makes it quite clear, even some of the deeper theological doctrines. So don't let that scare you away at all. But it, it really, as you continue to meditate on the book of Romans, I think, I think there will be times when We'll look at that this morning. Paul's coming across almost as like as if, if he's, as if he's a prosecuting attorney. And all of humanity is on trial. And he really lays it out there. And by the time he gets through, there isn't any of us that can say, well, that didn't include me. But there's other times when he not only acts as the defense attorney, but really he just reveals the Father's heart over and over and over and we get an idea, we, we should get a better idea, even today, but each day as you read through the book of Romans, you should get a better idea each day of what God did for us out of his unfathomable love for us. He fixed a problem that there was no human fix, none. And how he did it is an amazing, amazing story. Paul wrote the book of Romans to the church in Rome while he was in Corinth, on his third missionary journey. Uh, it's, it's kind of assumed that he wrote it, as best they can tell, in about the year 58 A.D. So this is 25 years or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus, 20 to 25 years. So it's not like it's ancient history. He's never been to the church in Rome that he's writing this letter to. And when you, when you think about it, he's writing, and when you read this letter, you think, wow, you didn't know these people. Well, we'll discover that there were a number of people, uh, if you jump way ahead to Romans chapter 16, he starts saying, greet, 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 all these people. So he knew a number of the people, including, like for, for example, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. They were in the church there. So he knew a number of the people. It's primarily a Gentile church. Primarily, there are a number of Jewish believers in the church, but it's primarily a Gentile church. And it's a church that it's, he writes in the letter, 
Oh, I've wanted to come there so long, so many times. But the Holy Spirit prevented me from coming. And as we know from the end of the book of Acts, we finally got to go there under what we would have thought would have been strange circumstances. He was taken as a prisoner on a ship, shipwrecked, etc., etc., etc. He's finally in, in Rome. And the end of the book of Acts ends with us telling, telling us that Paul was imprisoned in a house, but he had a lot of freedom in that house. And it says for two years people came and he was able to share the gospel freely. And many, many people, including those in Caesar's own household, that have gotten saved. And he's writing this to a church in Rome, and Rome was at the time the place in all of the known world. It was the place of power, place of authority. It was the place of idolatry. It was a place of sensual and sexual sin and worship. It was, it was an ungodly place. And this is where he's writing the letter to. Um, the title of my message, and he could have picked a whole bunch of different things, but I am not ashamed of the gospel is the simple title of my message. Paul's heart, I am not ashamed of the gospel. In the very first verse of the very first chapter, Romans 1.1, Paul says this, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He starts out by telling that I am a bondservant. He's identifying himself. And as you read the first few verses of the book of Romans, being Paul hasn't been to Rome, it's almost like he's trying to develop a little bit of a relationship with them who he is, what he's about, even though there's many people there that would have heard of him because of his acquaintances and travels in other parts of Asia and then into Europe. It's like he's trying to build a little bit of a relationship, and he tells them, I'm a bondservant. And that word bondservant really means I am a slave. A slave, and it's a relationship of total dependence upon whoever it is you're serving. So he is saying, I am a slave to Jesus Christ. I am a slave to God. I am totally dependent upon him. It's a permanent relationship, he is saying. It's a permanent relationship of servitude. This is who I am. Whatever I was before, this is who I am now. And then he says, that's who I am. That's who the messenger is. And he says, really the message, he declares, I have been set apart. God's called me. And really, he calls all of us. But he says, I have been set apart for the gospel of God. This is how he introduces himself. This is how he he lays it open. He begins there. And then in Romans 1, verses 13 through 15, he says this, I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you. In other words, he wanted to come and lay some of his teaching and preaching into the church like he'd done everywhere else. I want some fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, the intellects and the not-so-intellectuals. He says the Greeks and the barbarians, the wise and the foolish. Basically, he says, I, I am I'm indebted to everyone. Why? Because I am totally dependent on Jesus Christ and I'm to deliver his message. So I'm indebted to everyone. I'm obligated to everyone. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who also are in Rome. 
Now, if you just read that introduction, you think, oh, that's a nice introduction. But if you think about it a little bit, just think about that last phrase. I am eager to, to come and share the gospel, preach the gospel to you in Rome. This is the Paul who was imprisoned in Philippi. He was ran out of Thessalonica at the risk of death. He had to be smuggled out of the city of Berea because they were going to kill him there too. He was laughed at and ridiculed in Athens, the intellectual center of the world. He was seen as a fool in Corinth. He was nothing but an irritant and a sore spot to the, the religious people in Jerusalem. And it was more, more than an irritant because he was such an irritant that they tried to kill him more than once, many times. He was stoned and left for dead outside the city in Galatia. He was arrested. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. And this is the guy that writes, I can hardly wait to get to Rome to preach to you the gospel. It's like you're in the fire, you're in the pot over the fire, and you say, I can hardly wait to get thrown out of the pot and get put right in the flames. What could compel him? The message. The message that he was to deliver. When we look at the book of Romans, from here on out, the following two verses that follow that, verses 15 or 16 and 17, a lot of people would tell you that it, the whole rest of the letter to the Roman church is nothing but an exp- expansion of the verses 16 and 17. And I'm going to be focusing primarily on those two verses, and I'm going to be focusing primarily on just four different words in those two verses. The, the scripture reads this way, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. We're going to come back to those two verses, but to jump ahead a little bit. It's like Paul throws that out after introducing himself. He throws those two verses out and then it's like he put on his prosecuting attorney's hat. When we look at Paul, when he starts out by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I just went through how he had been treated in all these different cities. But nowhere Paul traveled, nowhere he wa- where he was, no matter who he was standing before, whether it was governors and kings or religious leaders, the high priest, no matter where he went, no matter who he spoke to, he was never intimidated. Somehow he was able to overcome the fear of man. And right there you could take a whole sermon. How about us? Where are we at? Are we like Paul? Are we never intimidated? to share the gospel. We're called, that's our commissioning, go into all the world, go into all the world making disciples, sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel, teaching the gospel, demonstrating the gospel. Paul says, Paul tells us he was never ashamed of the gospel. How many times do we have opportunities to speak the truth of the gospel where it is needed, where it is needed because people need Total life change. And we have the answer. And yet, how many times do we not speak? And sometimes I think this is even worse. Or how many times 
do we compromise what the gospel really says and make it say something else? There are many times when we have an opportunity to share the truth, life-giving truth, and yet we water down the message because we're afraid to offend. They're afraid to hurt people's feelings. When the reality is we all need the truth of the gospel. And the problem is, I think we don't understand the power of the gospel. We don't understand Paul's message like we think we do. Because if we did, I think we would be motivated like Paul and say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I can overcome that fear of man. I don't have to worry about being ridiculed, made fun of, uh, disliked, cast aside. I don't need to worry about that. They need the gospel. The world needs the gospel. You and I needed the gospel. And Paul says, I've never, ever been ashamed. Ever. In the letter that Paul is writing, one of the first things he does after he says these verses, the next, all the way through the end of chapter 1, it's like, as I say, he puts on the prosecutor's hat and he makes one thing clear. We need Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus. We are lost. Mankind without Christ is lost, period. And everybody wants to be found. Everybody wants to discover who they really are, whether they'll admit it or not, or whether they even know it or not. But they need Jesus. And this is what Paul is saying. So what he does, first of all, in the next umpteen verses, is make a case showing us that we all need Jesus. And it's kind of easy to go through these next number of verses and point our fingers at somebody else. Oh yeah, they need Jesus. They need Jesus. That's their issue. That's them. By the time Paul gets through, <laughs> we're all nailed. If you're not, I'd like to meet you afterwards and change your name to Jesus. So Paul lays it out. In Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, he lays it out. I'm not going to have it on the screen. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm just going to kind of go through some of the lowlights or the highlights of those verses. Verse 18, and this should draw your attention right away. He says this, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. Men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is poured out. Now when we think of the wrath of God, oftentimes the only way I think of it is, boy, God's ticked off. And he's going to let us have it. That is the wrong impression of the wrath of God. God does not want anyone to experience his wrath. But his attitude and his holiness towards sin, the natural outcome of his hatred towards sin is his wrath. His, his holiness, his justice require that wrath of God is poured out on sin in the life of an unbeliever. So Paul's saying it's, 
it's God's wrath from heaven will be poured out on all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. And ungodliness and unrighteousness, in my natural mind, I look at those and I think, well, what's the difference? Why did he repeat himself? Well, ungodliness in the original language has way more to do exclusively with God. God not getting the desire and honor and the, the glory that he deserves from us. Ungodliness. I don't honor him. I don't glorify him. I don't lift him up. I don't give him thanks. I don't give him the credit. I, I don't do any of those things. And if I'm not giving it to him, what am I doing with it? I'm giving it to something else. And more often than not, me. Self. Ungodliness is the whole idolatry thing. And when you're speaking to these crowds, you've got to remember at this time, Egypt had been a world power. Idolatry, idolatry, idolatry. Greeks and Romans, idolatry. The creature was elevated above the creator. You know, we see so many idols in ancient Egypt, for example, of animals. I mean, animals, for goodness sakes. At least the Romans and the Greeks primarily made idols out of people. Compared to God, he could just as well be an animal. And he's dealing with that. He's setting the stage that this idolatry, the ungodliness, unrighteousness is more about the injustice that we show to our fellow man. When we treat mankind badly, unjustly, when we don't demonstrate the love of Christ towards mankind, so what Paul is doing, he's, in, he's throwing out an indictment and he says, God's wrath is going to be poured out from heaven upon all those who are ungodly, who do not honor me, who do not give me the glory that I'm due, and on all of those who treat their mankind, fellow men, badly and unjustly in contrast to what the word of the God says. Wow. Verses 19 and 20, Paul tells us, that God has made himself evident. In verse 19, it says this, because that which is known about God is evident within them. We always want to let some people off the hook, but what if they don't know? Paul is saying everybody knows something and God is going to hold them accountable to what they know. And he says, everything about me that they need to know is within them. What that tells me is God puts something in every human being that's ever been born that they would know that there is a God. There is a divine God. There is something, somebody. They may not know anything more than that, but he's put that in them. And what Paul is saying is, therefore, we're all without excuse. Oh, we like to make excuses. Humanity, mankind, people, we love to make excuses. How do you know there's a real God? Is there a real God? Oh, you guys, you just you take the Bible, blah, 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 blah. The reality is everyone is without excuse according to the Word of God. At the very least, there's an internal knowledge that's been put in us. Some of his attributes, his divine attributes, his divine nature have been clearly seen his words, being understood through creation, so all are without excuse. Verse 21, they knew God. He says they're without excuse. They knew God, but they didn't honor him. Whatever knowledge they had of him, they didn't honor him. 
They honored other things. They honored his creation instead of the creator. And there's a, a progression downward as you go through these verses, and here's just a little bit how it works. They became futile in their own imaginations, their own thoughts. There was nothing but futility. And from there it goes downward. It says, they became futile in their own imaginations. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Verses 23 through 25, they exchanged the worship and glory of God for the worship of creation. Idols of man, idols of animals, and ultimately, worship of self. Goes on, it says, that God gave them over. And those words are repeated in verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. God gave them over. First, he says he gave them over to their own lusts and impurity. He gave them over to degrading passions, and then he gave them over to a depraved mind. Notice, he just gave them over. It doesn't mean God made that happen. He just removed his restraints. It's like he just said, okay, I'm going to pull back my grace, and I'm going to let them go where they want to go. The depravity of the human mind really does not have a bottom if it goes unchecked. And we see God saying that. He removed his protection. Verses 26 through 31. Paul lays out the results of holding back his grace. And I'm going to read Paul's indictment against all of us. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, lesbianism. And in the same way, also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desires towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error, homosexuality. And just as they did not see fit to... And a lot of people quit reading right there so we can point our finger with condemnation and judgment and not with love. We need to keep reading. It says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which were not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness. Now he's talking about men, women, all of us. Wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, hated of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventing new ways of evil, disobedient to their parents, without understanding, untrusting, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Did I miss anybody? He got us all. He is showing every single one of us, no matter who you are, no matter what you think you are, we need Jesus. Because any one of those things, any one of them, is worthy of death. Worthy of death. And then he goes on as if doing them is not bad enough. He says, although they knew the ordinances of God, Whatever knowledge they had, Paul is making clear to us, 
they know something. There's something deposited in us. There's something in there. Sometimes we call it a conscience. Sometimes it's just obvious, you know, that there's a difference between some things that are right and some things that are wrong. Wherever it comes from, it says it's in there. It says they knew the ordinances of God. And those who practice such things are worthy of death. But they not only do them the same thing, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Like that's even worse. We live in a culture where so many of those sins that are listed in those few verses are being approved of, encouraged, endorsed. Shoot, you know, it's all about me. Go for it. It's all pride. You know, there, there's, a, there's, there's a whole industry in marketing out there that does nothing but target the, the, the selfishness of humanity. And it's all worthy of death. And not only do we do it, we encourage it without the Lord. After making his condition of man, you could get depressed and think, I can hardly wait for the rest of this book. No, he's just, he's just making this point. You know what? We all need Jesus. Without him, we were all lost. No matter where we are, what we were, what we still are, what we're still wrestling with, whatever it is, you know what, if I go through that list of things, I'd like to say, I'm glad they're all gone. But they're not. They're not. Not in my life and probably not in yours. But something's different. And that's the good news that Paul is going to lay out in the rest of the book. There's good news. He kind of ends, sort of, kind of, in Romans 3.23, this accusation. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So he goes through this list, and in case you missed it, he hits it and says, y'all have sinned. Every single one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, you know, that's one of the many reasons we need to be really careful who we point fingers at, who we are judging. We need to judge sin, but it's not our job to judge people's hearts. We need to confront sin in our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not the loving thing to do to allow sin to continue, to encourage it in any way. But we need to do it in love and with the power of the gospel. Not attacking words, not ridiculing words, not mocking words. The power of the gospel and love. Which brings me back to Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul has made clear the problem. Let us know there's no remedy in and of our own strength, but there's a remedy. Verse 24 of Romans 3:24, before I <clears throat> go back to that a second, if you would. First he says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and he follows it right up with saying, Being justified is a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So just in a nutshell there, he encapsulizes in two verses the problem and the solution. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But he says there is this amazing gift of redemption that's available to all. We can be justified. And, and boy, justification, maybe that will come up in, a, in one of the messages in the next few weeks. 
But justification is, is, is just, well, the best way to say it, the easiest way is, you know what? It's gone. Your sin is gone. It's just gone. He took care of it. We've been justified. It's not that, oh, geez, I was this, that, or the other thing. Let's use a natural example. I'm speeding, and I get pulled over by Adam Connor, and I say, Adam, you go to my church. Please let me off. And he goes, sorry, there's a rule. And here it is. I'm going to write you a ticket. You were having fun going fast. It's going to cost you $280. Oh, this didn't happen yet. It's going to cost you $280. Oh, come on, really? I'm your pastor. We like each other. We talk. I, I might have even done something good for you once. Really, will you let me off? And he's like, no, that doesn't justify what you've done. There's nothing you could do, Mike, that will justify what you've done except go to court, pay the fine. But that's not biblical justification. You know, I can justify myself in the natural by paying the consequences, paying whatever the fine is, going to prison, whatever it is. I can do all those things, and I justify myself. That's not it at all with the justification that God has for us. The justification that he, it's gone. My sins are gone. There's nothing I could do. The penalty is gone. The price was paid in full by someone else named Jesus. So when God looks at me, it's gone. Oh, my goodness, that's good. When we get it, it's like you can just feel the weight just fall off you. Now, we are supposed to then. Walk it out as best we can by the Holy Spirit. But there's a power of God. And that's what I want to focus on as we go into these four words in Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. See if you can guess the four words. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. First word is power. It is the power of God. He's talking about what? He's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and let me tell you why. It is the power of God. Just think, the omnipotence of God is contained in the the gospel message. What we can't change on our own, what no man can do, the power of God is in the gospel. The power of God. The power of God that spoke and the universe came into being. The power of God that split the Red Sea. The power of God that caused manna from heaven to come and feed the Israelites. The power of God of every miracle that you've ever seen is in the gospel. I've never really thought about it like that. There's a power of God in the gospel. When you share the gospel message, you are releasing the power of God to whoever is hearing the message. Think about that. That's amazing. You want to walk in power? Share the gospel. The power of God is released. The dunamis, the word we get there is what? Dynamite. The power of God, the dynamite of God, the power that spoke and said, let there be light and there was light is in the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says this, for the word of the cross, the gospel, is to those who are perishing foolishness. The unbelievers look at you and they might laugh. 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God. The, the message of the cross, the gospel message, it will change lives. If you've received it, it changed yours. As a matter of fact, it may be one of the greatest, if not the greatest, expression of God's power. The power to save. The power to transform people. The power to change your very nature. And the power to change your eternity. That's power. The second word is salvation. It is the power of God for salvation. Sotaria. And the original language means deliverance. It is the power of God for deliverance. Deliverance from sin, deliverance from Satan, deliverance from judgment, deliverance from hell. It's deliverance. The gospel is the power of God for deliverance, salvation. This deliverance includes forgiveness of our sins. It includes the escape. Remember what that verse said? The wrath of God is going to be poured out from heaven. The power of God unto deliverance from the wrath of God. A believer, a child of God, is not going to experience the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not a spanking because you misbehaved. The wrath of God is God's just response to sin and those who reject him. For a believer, I don't ever have to worry about the wrath of God. It's not coming on me. It's the power of God unto salvation. Man is lost, the power of God to save that lost person. How does the power of God bring about salvation? Let's look at the verse. Through faith or believing. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for everyone who has faith. Notice, it's available to everyone. And God is continually bringing everyone's across your path. Many, many times prompting you by his spirit to share the gospel, the power of God unto salvation for them, everyone who believes. It's not our job. It's not our power. It's not our wit. It's not our intellect that's going to convince them. It's the power of God contained in the gospel. They need to hear the gospel message. The message is for everyone. How does it get there? By faith. It operates through faith. Where there is faith to receive this message, the power of God is there for salvation. Only to those who believe. What are they supposed to believe? What are they supposed to believe? The power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Believes what should be the next question. Well, believes the simple gospel message. If you want to sum it up real easily, Jesus is who he said he is, and he died for the reasons he said he died, and that he rose again from the dead. Who did he say he was? He was the Son of God, the pure, sinless man, yet God. Why did he die? For the forgiveness of sins, that all man may be redeemed 
Relationship restored with God. That's why he died, to forgiveness of sins. To pay the price that we would all be fully justified before the Father. Our sins wiped away. And he, raised, he was raised from the dead. Proof, evidence, the sacrifice was sufficient. We don't need a written receipt. Jesus got up from the dead, walked around earth before he went back to his heavenly home. For by grace you are saved through faith. Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you are saved through faith. It's by grace. It's a free gift. You didn't deserve it. You receive it by faith. Therefore, no man can boast. In other words, you're not saved by professing to be a Christian. Anybody can tell you they're a Christian. You're not saved by baptism. You're not saved by being a good moral person. You're not saved by going to church. It's a good idea, but you're not saved by it. You're not saved by following and conforming to the rules. Again, it might be a good idea, but it won't ever save you. You can do all you want to keep all Ten Commandments, and they're not going to save you. None of them. Being a good moral person, I hope you are, but it won't save you. Self-discipline, to say no, won't save you. Only one thing. The gospel message, believing in who Jesus said he was, why he said he died, and that he rose again from the dead. You're saved by the power of God through grace. It's the power of God. The gospel has the power, the power to save everyone who believes. But if you're like me, there's a question that comes. Okay, I, I, I think I track with all that so far. I understand what we're supposed to believe, but still, how does he do it? I mean, how does, how does all that really bring about my salvation? How does all that bring about my deliverance? And that brings me to the fourth word, and maybe if there's a more important one, the important one, and that's righteousness. And it's the righteousness of God. When we read that simple verse, for it is in the gospel, for in it, meaning the gospel, is the righteousness of God is revealed. Again, here's where our own thinking can confuse the issue. Revealed isn't like peekaboo. <laughs> it's just not unveiled. That's not it. It's revealed means it's given to you. The righteousness of God is given to you. His righteousness. There is not one of us that was ever righteous in our own strength, will ever be righteous. But it says, for in it, the gospel, it has the power to deliver for all who believe because when they do, here's a conversation going on, okay? I'm going to pretend I'm God. All that lightning last night, I'm pretty brave. But it's as if Jesus says, if God says, if you just believe, just believe, I will give you my righteousness. And Mike, Mike says, how can you do that, God? Because the justice of God has been met. The penalty for sin was death. You deserve to die, I deserve to die. What a deal. He gives Jesus all my sin, and he dies in my place, and he gives me his righteousness. I don't have to be very smart to say that's a good deal. And yet we all know that so much of the world will reject it. So much of the world rejects it. 
the justice of God has been met. Jesus paid the penalty. It's been paid in full. Therefore, God says, I'm giving you my righteousness. His righteousness, and again, this is a little bit oversimplified, but it says, if there was a price for his righteousness, it had to be a righteous sacrifice had to be made. And there was none on earth because all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So Jesus left heaven, came to earth as a child, walked on the earth for 30-some years, and then he died on a cross, sinless and righteous. And because of that, the transaction was made, as only God can understand. Jesus took my sin. Mike, here is my righteousness. So when God looks at me, he no longer sees Mike with all his sin. What he sees is his righteousness. And this is what's been given to every single child of God, his righteousness. And I know if you're like me, you can hear all this and it just sounds good, but when it starts to settle in, when it starts to become a reality, it just changes you. It continues the process of transformation because justification is just the first step. Then there's that whole thing we call sanctification where we really become set apart. There's obedience motivated by love. But right now, Paul is just saying, you know what? We're all sinners. We have all sinned. We all fell short of the glory of God. We were all separated from God. He couldn't have intimate relationship with any of us because of sin. And Jesus came and he removed all the sin and God covered us with the cloak of his righteousness and that's how we stand before him. Righteous in his sight because he's looking at his own righteousness. Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. For in it, he, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. But the righteous man shall live by faith. The only way we can be a righteous man is to receive his righteousness by faith. Obvious questions would be, have you believed? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as who he was and what he did and that he was raised from the dead? Second question would be, isn't it a message worth sharing? We need to be an outreach church. We need to be a church that is not afraid to share the good news of the gospel. We should be so overwhelmingly thankful that we have the righteousness of God, that he changed us, he transformed us. You know, my eternity was destined for hell, and now my eternity is heaven and his presence forever. That's a pretty good deal. Wouldn't you like to share that? Paul was so compelled by it, he says, I am a slave, a bond servant, a slave. I am totally dependent for the rest of my life on God. That's how grateful I am. And because of that, I am compelled. I can hardly wait to go to Rome and share the gospel. Well, our Rome is all around us. And it's getting as ugly as ancient Rome. We need to be sharing the gospel. Let's not be ashamed of the gospel, the good news. Let's pray. Lord, I pray first and foremost a prayer of thanksgiving for the life that we have in Christ.
for your plan of redemption, your plan of salvation, your plan of deliverance. God, I thank you for what you delivered me from. I thank you for what you've delivered so many here from. God, and I pray that if there's anyone here still living in a place of separation from you, today would be the day that the power of God would be released unto salvation and that they would be able to believe by grace and that they could receive the gift of your righteousness. Lord, I pray that the lives we live, we continually live in such a way as to bring you glory and honor. God, we know it's a process of separating ourselves from all of that old sin. I thank you that you don't even see it. But I also thank you that you want us to walk in freedom and liberty in a way to bring glory and honor to you. I pray, God, that the love of Christ that compelled Paul would be the same love that would compel us, that we would be able to share the gospel with love to those who have yet to believe. Lord, I pray now as we go, you would go before us, arranging those divine appointments. I pray, God, you would put a hunger in us for your word. God, I pray that you would draw each one of us to an in-depth study of the book of Romans that we might see just what an amazing, loving God we serve. Protect us as we go. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.